Turn with me today to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 1 and looking at verses 11 through 12 today. Ephesians 1 verses 11 and 12. And as you get there, the world exists to praise Christ Jesus. That's a controversial statement. And it may not be controversial to us, but it is to many. Uh, it's controversial because the, the it says something about the preeminence of Jesus Christ, which not everybody agrees on, right? The, the Muslim faith says that Jesus was a prophet and nothing more. Uh, he was no different than the prophets of old. And we declare that Jesus Christ is God. He's the Son of God, and He is worthy of worship. And worship is due no one else but God. It's a controversial statement because it tells us what our, our purpose in life is, that we exist to praise and to glorify God. And not everybody wants to do that, whether that's just because they want to be rebellious and don't want to uh, praise God at all, right? They don't want to be told, your job is to praise God. Or whether it's just a matter of indwelling sin, right? Sin is such that it wants to glorify itself and not God. And the controversy even extends to religious peoples. Uh, people who say they worship the one true and living God find controversy in this statement. For instance, consider Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, in Luke chapter 19, verses 37 through 40. Luke 19, 37 through 40. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Right, so Rabbi, the religious Pharisees call out. Rabbi, control your students. Stop them. And we might say, and we might understand this to be a pragmatic reason, uh, that the Pharisees had a pragmatic reason in stopping this, this act of worship. And it could be because the Romans would get upset. They said, oh no, there's a mob outside of Jerusalem. They're coming in to take the city. Send out the troops and kill them all. Uh, stop the festivities, right? Passover is coming, and the Pharisees don't want any trouble, except for they do want trouble, right? We know their, their intention. They want Jesus dead. So we could say that it's a pragmatic reason, but whatever it may be, they want worship to stop. And what does Jesus say? If lips be silent, stones will cry out. And today I want us to see as we come to Ephesians 1, that the inheritance of the people of God is to the praise of God's glory. The inheritance of the people of God is to the praise of God's glory. 
And as has been our practice as we've been going through this first section, I want us to read in total verses 3 through 14. It's one sentence in the Greek. It's a long sentence. Uh, But I want us to read this all so that way we have the understanding of the context of where we're at. But then we'll focus in on 11 and 12 today. So starting in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. So much of what we have been discussing in this section of blessing God, and and remember that this is what this section is about. It's about praising God. The the first word there in verse 3, blessed, is this God is praiseworthy. God is blessed. He is worthy of praise. And the first kind of section that we have been dealing with have been really about generalities. We've been talking about what's true of all Christians from before the foundation of the world. And now as we come to... uh, to verses 11 through 14, we start to zoom in a little bit and talk about some specific groups of Christians and what that relates to uh, how God is praiseworthy. Uh, At the end of verse 10, or in verse 10, uh, we see that the purpose of Christ is that all things might be summed up in him or united in him or brought to this end that all things in heaven and all things on earth would be to the praise of Christ Jesus. And surely we get the understanding of this, uh, this purpose of Paul uh, in Philippians 2, for instance. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. This is uh, maybe a familiar set of verses for us. But I want us to, to draw our attention that this is something we see again and again throughout the scriptures. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what end? To the glory of God the Father. Right? All creation will one day cry out, and confess the worth of Christ Jesus to the Father's glory. 
And as Paul draws our attention here, so again, what we're doing in verses 11 through 14, although we're only looking at 11 through 12 today, but what we're looking at in this latter part of this praise to God is we're zooming in on a couple of different groups of people. And the first that we'll see today, I'm going to argue, is about the apostles and the Jewish believers. And then next week we'll look at, uh, Lord willing, we'll look at the Ephesian church, the, the Christians there in Ephesus. But let's get to our passage today and first see predestined to be an inheritance. And we'll look at verse 11 to that end. Predestined to be an inheritance. So verse 11 begins, in him we, and I'll pause there because we have a number of questions here in our text that we have to deal with to understand it. And the first is, who is we? Not talking about the Nintendo video game system of some years back. Who is we? Not talking about uh, little tiny things, right? Who is we? And the we that Paul is referring to in this verse, when we read it in the context of verse 12, where it says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, and when we look at verse 13, we see more of the context when it says, in him you also, so right, Paul seems to be uh, talking about different groups of people. And so it seems like Paul is writing about the apostles and the first Jewish believers. So the we of verse 11 is the apostles and the first Jewish believers, right? Remember, he's writing to the Ephesian church, and the Ephesian church is going to have Gentiles in it. Uh, It will likely have some Jewish uh, number of believers there, but it's also going to have Gentiles there. So I think that's why Paul's making a distinction. We understand, we know this from the scriptures, Whom did the gospel first come to? The Jewish people, right? We know that. Uh, Even if you look at the the call of the Great Commission in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses when uh, when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, and all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So if we take that as kind of the the line of, of the the message of the gospel going forth, and if you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what we see, right? Where do they start? Jerusalem. Who's in Jerusalem? Who are the occupants of Jerusalem? The Jewish people, right? So it it seems best to understand that what Paul is zooming in on here is the blessings of the apostles and the first Jewish believers. Now, I say all that to say this. Not all scholars agree on this point. Some indicate that in this blessing of God, in this praise of God here in this first section, is that it makes sense of all believers, and so it doesn't make sense for Paul to zoom in on one particular portion of believers. And also, there's not like this, this pronoun usage. We can't apply to every everything in the book of Ephesians, and so... Uh, They don't see this as relating to a specific subset of believers. And so they would argue the we is what the we always means in the book of Ephesians, which is all believers everywhere. Uh, I don't I don't agree with that interpretation, uh, but I do want to make you aware of it. 
It seems most likely that Paul is talking about, in verses 11 through 14, two distinct groups. The first being the, the apostles, the first Jewish believers, and the second being the church in Ephesus. And by the way, all this has uh, bearing on, on who we are as believers today. So it's not as though it doesn't matter to us. But the second thing that we have to understand here is it says, In him, so right, in Christ, in whom we, the apostles, and the first Jewish believers have obtained an inheritance. And now the second major interpretive struggle of this verse is that question of the issue of this word inheritance. Whose is the inheritance? The word in the Greek actually means something like closer to appointed by lot. Appointed by lot. This particular version of this word, so what we see here in Ephesians, is not used elsewhere in the New Testament. So we can't just say, well, okay, how is this word used elsewhere in the New Testament? Uh, the noun uh, version of this word is used in the book of Colossians, which shouldn't surprise us because Colossians and Ephesians are close cousins. Uh, it is used in Colossians, and it is used there to indicate something like an inheritance. That's Colossians 1.12. If you want to go look that up later, Colossians 1.12. But this word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 14. And so I want us to look at that briefly so we understand how it's used there. Because as Paul is writing, he knows the Greek Old Testament. Uh, we see elsewhere that he seems to be acquainted with it. When he quotes things, sometimes he uses uh, the Greek Old Testament. Old Testament rather than the Hebrew, right? Uh, he's writing in Greek. It's easier to, to call it up in Greek. But anyways, uh, in 1 Samuel 14 and verses 41 to 42, so uh, quite far into it, it's 1 Samuel 14 verses 41 through 42. We see this word used appointed by Lot, inheritance. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. So, right, appointed by lot, chosen by lot. Uh, that's, that's what Jonathan... This is that idea here, right? Jonathan was taken by Lot. Um, and also just as an aside here, lest we think that the casting of Lots is something of magic or of blind chance, let us remember what the scripture says in Proverbs 16.33. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So uh, to, to modernize that a little bit more, Albert Einstein says, God does not play dice. Right? So it's not chance that this happens. Uh, so Jonathan was appointed by Lot. Saul and Jonathan were appointed by Lot in comparison to Israel, and then Jonathan taken. So I would actually argue that rather than what we see perhaps in the ESV, we have attained an inheritance, that it seems better to render it like the net version does, which reads this way. In Christ... We too have been claimed as God's own possession since we were predestined 
according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. So the, the, the NET version there renders it, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. So the inheritance, I argue, is that the inheritance is God's inheritance, those whom God has been appointed by lot. He has an inheritance in his people. And I believe that Paul is pulling this, this idea, because it's not something unique to Paul. It's actually something grounded in the Old Testament. It's grounded in the people of Israel. And so Paul's using this image from the Old Testament to, to apply it to believers in the New Testament period, right? And under the New Covenant. Uh, we see this in relation to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 4.20. Deuteronomy 4.20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Or elsewhere in Deuteronomy, it talks about how God has, out of all the peoples of the earth, chosen Israel to be his people. He has appointed them by lot. He has chosen them as his portion in accord with his divine will. Right? We see that. Look at verse 11 again, back in Ephesians. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's people are chosen by him according to his purpose after his own counsel. Right? God chose his people and he alone works all things according to his will. He alone can do that. Right? He alone has the power and wisdom to arrange all of history to this end. Now, briefly, I would say that the alternative understanding here, the one adopted by the ESV and other translations, is to see the we of this verse receiving an inheritance, right? In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, could we say as believers, do believers obtain an inheritance from God? Yes, that's a biblical idea too, right? That's part of the struggle is how do we, uh, that, that our translators uh, deal with, that scholars deal with uh, the language of the New Testament in words that aren't clear. Uh, we have to look to other portions of the Bible and ask, well, what clarity can those give us? Uh, and we can see how God has an inheritance of his people. And we can also see how God's people have an inheritance. Uh, for instance, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are born again to an inheritance. And what kind of inheritance is it? It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven. And even there, right, we might, uh, that might trigger some memories. It does for me at least. Store your treasures in heaven, right, where no, no moth, no rust, no thieves, 
So in summary, uh, either conclusion is supported in the scripture, right? So that's the, not uh, the, the argument between two positions that are contradictory to the scriptures. Either conclusion is supported. Believers have an inheritance waiting for them. That's the predestinating purpose of God. And believers are themselves an inheritance for God. God's purpose is to create for himself a people of his own possession. We see that in Titus, for instance. But I would argue that it seems better to understand this word to indicate God's choice for himself. It is about his inheritance and not our inheritance. So what do we do all this? In him, in whom, in Christ, we the first believers, the apostles, uh, the Jewish believers that witnessed Christ's ministry, that these are a portion of God's inheritance. These are God's people whom he has purpose to have. This is a slight aside, but realize that Jesus Christ chose his disciples. Right? He chose them. He, with purpose, chose them. Uh, Luke 6.13, for instance, tells us that. I just give you that to, to go look up later. Luke 6.13. He chose the twelve uh, who would most closely bear witness to his words and works that they may go forth to the purpose for which they were created. And yes, that includes Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Jesus Christ knew who Judas was and what Judas would do, and he still chose him to be one of the twelve. And yes, that also includes Paul, who is himself one called untimely born. He calls himself that in 1 Corinthians 15. And to what end has God chosen these men and women who believe in Christ Jesus? They are chosen to the end for praise. And I want to see that next in verse 12. Chosen to the end for praise. So that, uh, or as the New American Standard puts it, to the end that. And what's the point in this language? Here's the conclusion, right, of this thought. Paul has given us this thought and he says, so that the purpose of this, what is the purpose of God choosing for himself an inheritance according to the purpose of his will, so that, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And here we have that phrase again, to the praise of his glory. It's a phrase we saw a like phrase to it in uh, verse 6 of chapter 1 here, right? To the praise of his glorious grace, or to the praise of the glory of his grace. We'll see it again in verse 14. And indeed, that's the whole point of this, this first section in Ephesians, right? Is to say that God is worthy of praise. That's the whole point. God has chosen some out of the peoples of the world, even some from his people Israel, to be his. And all this is in accord with his purpose and plan. And surely that makes him worthy of praise. Now we ask the question, isn't this true of all Christians? Yes. And in one sense, is it true of all creation? That all creation is created to the praise and the glory of God. Even that portion of creation that does not acknowledge God as God. Yes. God is glorified in Satan. And that seems like a strange thing to say. But that is the reality. Uh, we could look at Romans 9, for instance, and see that uh, those who are called objects of wrath, 
are to the praise and glory of God. Even if they don't willingly submit to that, right? But Paul wants to draw the attention for a moment to the purpose of God and his choice of Paul and the other first believers. And again, we'll see how he doesn't stay there next time in verses 13 and 14. But but right here in this moment, consider this, that God has acted for the sake of his own name in choosing an inheritance for himself. God has purposed and planned all things to the end that he would be glorified. In that favored psalm, for instance, we get the flavor of this, Psalm 23.3. Psalm 23.3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Or we could look at, for instance, Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8. Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. And then we could jump to the book of Ezekiel. He uses this idea in Ezekiel 20, verse 9. Ezekiel 20, verse 9. Listen to this. Listen to what God says to the people of Israel during the time of Ezekiel, pointing back to the time of the Exodus. Ezekiel 20, verse 9. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And what's my point in raising all this? God acts for the sake of his glory, his character, or we might say his name. He will act in rebuking and disciplining those who bear his name that they may not bring reproach upon him. That is, that his glory may not be diminished in the sight of of the people's. Isn't this what we saw as we looked through the book of Hosea? God will act when the praises of his people are not what they should be. So understand that. The purpose of the apostles is to bring praise to God. That's their purpose. Paul writing to the church in Rome states, in Romans 1.5, in Romans 1.5 he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul was given grace and was called to be an apostle. That's what he's writing. To what end? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The grace of God had been given and the purpose of Paul's being called to the office of apostle was to bring glory to God's name. This was for the sake of the name of God among all the nations. And let us consider, did the apostles accomplish this? Yes. 
in some sense, not fully, right? Not even in our, our own time is it fully accomplished. But the gospel message through the faithfulness of the apostles has been kept and spread throughout the world. The point of God, the Holy Spirit, and breathing out the word of God through the hands of the apostles was for the sake of the glory of God, the name of God in all the nations. Because of their obedience to the command of God, there are people throughout the world that bring God praise. But it wasn't just through the apostles, right? It was also through the first Jewish believers who also carried the gospel message with them. And even though Paul, uh, then uh, more known as Saul, did not understand it at the time, when the persecution began in Jerusalem, when uh, Saul stood by watching Stephen be killed and the church was scattered, that that was the purpose of God to glorify his name among all the nations. The purpose of the first Jewish believers is to bring praise to God, right? That's, that's what we see here. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. They who set their hope in Christ were to the end that God would be glorified. Uh, we think of those who followed Jesus as, as his disciples before his death. They were some of the first to set their hope in Christ. We think of those women who first saw Jesus resurrected. And that's a little bit of a scandal, maybe not in our day, but certainly in and that day, that the first who were witnesses, eyewitnesses to the risen Savior, were not the men who were in fear and hiding, but were the women who were going to serve him. Women were invaluable partners to the ministry of Jesus. God is glorified in his chosen people, those whom he has appointed by lot, to go forth and proclaim his praise. These Jewish believers glorified God and brought him the glory due his name. But we also have to understand, right, that the purpose of all believers is to bring praise to God. Paul may zoom in on this one particular subset, but he doesn't stay there. And the intention is that if this is true for the, belief, for the first believers, the apostles, is it not also true for us? We might say this is an argument from the particular to the general. This is true in this case. Is that not true in all these cases? And so I speak to you who hear my voice today, that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have believed in him, you are his inheritance. God has purpose that you would be his. He works all things to the end of the counsel of his will. And if you are in Christ, you're part of that. He has done so to the praise of his glory. You exist, brothers and sisters, to bring praise to God. You exist to glorify and worship him. This time that we gather together 
is not about you. The goal of the church is not to serve you. Your salvation is not mainly about you. It's all about Christ Jesus. It's all about the glory of God. It's for His praise. This church fellowship exists to give God glory. And I know that may be hard to hear because we live in a world that is self-absorbed and self-obsessed. We are consumed with thoughts of our own identity. Everything is filtered through the lens of this question of uh, how does this benefit me? Friendships are about networking potential, right? Family members are there to help us when we need it. Our jobs need to meet our needs or else we bounce. And don't misunderstand me either. It's not as though those things don't matter. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter whether or not our job pays us well enough to take care of our family. It does matter. But so often our first thought is how does this benefit me? The root problem is this, that that's our default. That's our nature is to consider all things for our own benefit. And we don't consider what we must give, suffer, or sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, you were created for God's glory. He gathers you into the local expressions of the body of Christ, in other words, a church, that you may glorify Him. And how do you do that? How do you glorify God as you gather together as the people of God? Will you stir one another up to love and to good works? Hebrews 10.24 You use your spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. You pray for one another. We'll see that in Ephesians 6, 18. You give aid to one another. You have patience with one another. We could look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. You lovingly correct one another. Galatians 6, 1. And gentleness. If you need those references again, get with me afterwards. But listen, the apostles, those who founded the church, recognized that their place in this world was to bring praise to God's glory. They understood that God is to be worshipped, and he has purposed and planned according to the counsel of his will to that end. They were saved so they could praise God. Do we get this? Do we understand this? Does the church today understand that it exists for the glory of God? It rather seems to me that by and large the American church, at least a, the loudest portion of it, does not understand this. What is preached from the pulpits in America is about how we can feel better about ourselves or how our sin doesn't really matter because God will forgive us anyways. The expectation of those who come to a church meeting is one of their own preferences. How often in conversation about why a person chooses one church or another is based on this. I really like the music there. Or they have a really great youth program. They have a wonderful children's ministry. I like the music they sing. I like the youth program they have. Preferences. How many times do you hear someone say that the reason they were drawn to a church is because 
They worship God there. They give God glory there. Christ was, Christ was exalted there. The Holy Spirit, rather than being the source of fits and strange practices, the Holy Spirit is praised there. And church, this is what we must aim at. We exist to give God the glory due his name. And if none others join us, though all the world may forsake us, let us never forget why we exist. Listen to Paul's prayer for the Philippian church in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And may it be our prayer. Listen to this out of Philippians 1, starting in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. So let us go forth, beloved. Let us gather to this end. Let us spread the gospel for this purpose. The reality, though, is that for some of you, you do not glorify God with your mouth or your life. You may profess to do so. You may give lip service to the things of Christ, but your heart is not with it. You are far from God. Jesus, in discussing the nature of worship, says this in John 4, 23 and 24. John 4, 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If you profess to worship God, you must do so in spirit and truth. God is seeking such people. There must be wholeheartedness in your worship of God. You must give him glory without doubt, without sin consuming you. You must worship the true God and not one of your own devices or desires. God does not exist for you. You exist for God. And that may offend you, but it's essential to understand. Because God is God and you are not. And that may seem a simple, trite thing. But how often we want to place ourselves on the throne of God, telling him what he must do for us. Such is wickedness. Such is the way of the evil one who fell from his glorious state in the throne room of heaven. And understand that if you do not willingly praise God now, you will one day bring him glory in your judgment and eternal punishment. You will glorify God. You will, in the terrors of hell, scream out the righteousness of God, the rightness of the Lord God. And while your sin condemns you before a holy God, while all the evils that you think and say and do, your failure to worship God as God makes you fit for the fires of hell. There is given unto man a way to be forgiven of our sins. The apostles and first Jewish believers are to the praise of the glory of God and that they have been chosen by him to be his inheritance, right? That's what Paul expresses here in this passage. And how did they be 
come, how did they become one of God's people? Was it because they were intelligent enough? Was it because they were the most popular children in the playground? Right? Maybe it was because they worked really hard and they saved up enough salvation bucks to buy their way into heaven. No, none of these things, right? They were saved in Christ Jesus by his work applied on their account by the Holy Spirit in accord with the purpose of the Father. And what am I saying? I'm saying that their salvation was a work of grace, right? Unmerited favor. It was a work of grace of God. They were sinners dead in their sins. Their lot should have been the lake burning with fire, but God interceded. He sent his son Jesus to do what they couldn't, live a holy and perfect life. And when Jesus took up their sin and carried it to the cross, wherein he bore God's wrath for it, he nailed it, the record of debt to that cross, along with its legal demands. Their debt has been paid. And when Christ Jesus rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, he stood interceding in heaven on their behalf. By the way, this is what it means to uh, set their hope on. When it says they set their hope on Jesus Christ, this isn't a wishy-washy, oh, gee, I hope it doesn't rain today. No, this is trust. They trusted in Christ. They believed in him. They knew God is faithful. That the sureness of what God had promised would be. And I say all that to this end, that you too, if you believe in Christ, if you trust in his work, if you confess him as Lord, you can be saved. You can be the inheritance of God. You can be his chosen people. So pray to him, ask him, plead with him to save you from your sins, to give you the forgiveness of your sins. Look to Christ Jesus and be saved. Turn from the evils that you love and turn to God, and then bring God the glory to his name. And that, by the way, may seem a burden, but if you are in Christ, you'll find it no burden, but joy. Psalm 1611 says, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess this day that we exist to bring you praise and glory. And Father, we confess that we often fail to do that uh, in multiple ways. Father, how quick our hearts are to grow cold how quick we are to forget your word, how quick we are to return to our own vomit, to the things that, that are repulsive, sin, how quick we are to, to be as the Israelites of old. Oh, how we miss the bonds of our slavery. Father, forgive us for such things. Forgive us for such evil ways. And Father, we pray that that you would be glorified in us. Father God, we pray for this church fellowship 
that you have gathered, that we would glorify you. Lord God, that we would exalt your name, that, that people would know we worship God here, that we worship you alone, the one true and living God here. Father God, that is why we exist. That is what you have purposed and planned. That is what you have predestined for us. Father God, help us to live in it, to understand it, to glorify your name in all things. Father God, we thank you for the testimony of the first believers, the apostles, those faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who went before us so many years ago, who suffered so many things and yet ever was on their lips the praise of Christ Jesus, the praise and glory of you, O Father, the worship of the Spirit. O Father, uh, may we stand as faithful followers of Christ that the next generation and the next hundred generations may know you are worthy of glory. You are worthy of praise. Oh, Father, may they hear it from our lips. May they see it in our lives. Be glorified in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.